Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO and co-founder of Law in Sport. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as get to know some of the leading figures and personalities who work behind the scenes to keep sport running and to improve its professionalisation and ensure that it meets standards of good governance and all the things that, you know, hopefully if you tune into this podcast, you're interested in <laughs> that, that keeps sport running. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Catherine Aldway. She's a PhD assistant professor at the University of Canberra. She is a senior fellow at the University of Melbourne, having developed the, um, the sports integrity and investigations um, modules there. She has taught on a number of other sports management and sports law subjects and courses at master's and undergraduate level at La Trobe University and the University of New South Wales. She was an Australian squad member in the Olympic sport of handball and she competed for the Australian Capital Territory in Rugby Union and fenced at Intravarsity. Catherine is a lawyer, uh, but she also has a graduate diploma in investigations management in policing. Um, she acted for the Australian Olympic Committee in a legacy capacity in the a legacy, a legal capacity um, in the well, they did leave a legacy. <laughs> we talked about that earlier you know, for, for, the, for the, <laughs> the passed on to the London 2012 Games in the lead up to the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. She has extensive experience in international anti-doping administration and has con consulted on projects including Rio 2016 Olympic bid, the Budapest 2024 Olympic bids and the Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games. She served on numerous ethics and anti-doping committees in Australia and internationally and currently supports the International Cricket Council. Um, she's the chair of Anti-Doping Tribunal at World Curling. She's the chair of World Badminton's vetting panel. She also assists the Australian Sports Commission Clearing House. And she received an Edna Ryan Award in 2016 for her long-term commitment to promoting women in sport. Catherine, delighted to have you with us today. <laughs> That's exhausting. <laughs> Sounds exhausting. <laughs> Lovely to be with you, Sean. Well, I just think it's useful because the one the the, the, the reason for bringing you onto the podcast was that we there's a there was a catalyst, and the catalyst is that you've um, recently published a book, restoring trust in sport. Now, can you you know? You, it seemed to me that having looked at the book and saw the the fantastic foreword from David Howman. That it seems to be, you know, this book being a sort of accumulation of your experiences up to date. Um, do you want to just talk to us about it? Because the title itself, uh, Restoring Trust in Sport, is a simple one, but one I think everyone can sort of get behind. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sean. Um, the, the full title of the book maybe takes it even further because what it looks at is sport corruption case studies and solutions. And the solutions part is really crucial to me because when you look at all the different scandals and we've seen numerous examples across all sports, all countries in the world have experienced some kind of sports scandal, then what happens actually is that the trust in the sport, both in the administrators to bring about the sport um, and what you see on the field of play is destroyed. And in order to rebuild that, I wanted to work with the people that were doing the on-the-ground work to understand 
well, what tools do we have in our toolbox in order to rebuild sport and to restore trust in order to um, share some of those lessons around the world so that we can try to promote sport again for all that we love about it. And what were some of the key, um, obviously, yeah, I've, I've bought the book for disclosure, so I bought, yeah, I bought it on Kindle, so you can grab it on there or you can buy the hard copy as well. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to get pr- truly stuck into it. I've skimmed through it. But um, what are some of the sort of key takeaways? You know, you're an experienced, um, you know, both professional and academic in this field. Was there anything that sort of stood out to you that you thought, you know, this is either really uh, insightful or something that you maybe weren't aware of or, or was it just the case that it just reaffirmed what you already knew to be best practice? Well I actually really wanted to push my understanding because Hayden Opie from the University of Melbourne and I had written a book chapter a couple of years ago where we'd set out kind of 10 of the the sort of solutions that we thought would be useful and we really wanted to test that and go out into the field and say, well, are we right? Are there other ideas? Are there things that we haven't thought of? So, of course, because we're lawyers, we start with that framework and that lens and we say, okay, are there regulatory responses that we can do here? Is there more that we can do from a legislation perspective? We have the the international conventions against corruption and the transnational organised crime conventions. Can we be using those to strengthen the national legislation? Yes, we probably can do a lot more in that space. What then about policies? Can sports be doing more in terms of improving their policies, their codes of conduct, their codes of ethics? Can we do do more in the enforcement space? Absolutely. There's been plenty of examples around the world where we've got these beautiful rules, we've got policies, we've got legislation sometimes, but nobody does anything about it because what happens in sport stays in sport. So that was the first thing is to see, well, we've already got some tools, they're just not being enforced. So what can we do to try to improve that? And then we were saying, well, are there new tools? And uh, and a a classic example is, oh, we need more education. Well, okay, lovely. What does that mean, actually? (laughs) What kind of education? What's the content? What does it look like? Who's delivering the education? How is it delivered? When is it delivered? All of those things. And so you have to dig down and dig down. So that's what we did. So we looked at some of those examples. And in terms of the education, it's obviously something that, yeah, we're quite passionate about. Um, it, It always felt... And it still does feel to me at times that there's, you know, ex- there's some good, as always, there's, there's lots of good educators, as in individuals, but systemically, I don't have, I have concerns, I should say, in terms of it being um, information being delivered as opposed to true education and understanding in terms of the approach. It does, you know, I think there's little pockets, I can think of great examples of little pockets of very small groups who are doing master's programs and stuff like this, or very focused programs. But in the main, it seems that really it's just about, they're, they're previously anyway, um, you know, that all too often it's just been information delivery rather than education. What was it that you sort of saw as good examples of education in this arena? Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And I'm thinking about the example from Vietnam and um, that we have featured in the Restoring Trust in Sport book, where we were looking at the match-fixing cases there. And they had some rudimentary kind of uh, education programs where it was exactly as you said, athletes get sat in a room and said, we're going to talk to you about match-fixing in sport. How boring. Tick and flick. Um, they they put their, eye, their ears on and they listen to music and then they walk out. They've 
they've marked on the paper that they attended, that's the end of it. So that wasn't really capturing the hearts and minds. So the kinds of education that they were talking about there was doing more around ethical leadership and and understanding the why. And that was really a theme that came throughout the book is around ethical decision-making, ethical leadership, and that kind of um heart-centred why education so that people understand this is the impact if you make these choices. Everyone is going to make choices. Everybody has a different background and a different circumstances, um, but understand the impact and the consequences to the sport that you love. And that was really interesting. So we saw it in Nigeria in the case study there that they were they were suggesting that they should be doing more um, education work there. Then there was also examples um, in the Ryan Tandy case, for example, the NRL, the Rugby League in Australia case, where they looked at um, my colleague Liam and I looked at um, vulnerabilities and athletes that have... Uh, in this case, a gambling addiction, um, alcohol addictions, uh, illicit drug addictions, makes them more vulnerable to um, approaches around match fixing. What can we do to support those athletes? Is sitting them in a room for an hour once a season to talk to them about the, the wrongs of match fixing really going to change them? Or do we need to be putting better support networks around them that go beyond just pure information, as you say? It seems that there's a, a general trend. We just come off the back of our uh, football law conference. I mean, some fantastic panels. We had uh, Clive Sheldon QC talking um, on on the report in the systemic abuse within football. Football, um, yes, I caught that. Uh, yeah, and it seems to me that there is this trend now to, to sort of getting to, to the heart of everything, which maybe is to, to do with the sort of the evolution of sport, where yeah, your participants really matter, right? And actually looking after them rather than just, you know, as you were saying, getting the sort of tick box exercise. It's actually, look, hey, let's have a look at holistically at the environment. Let's look holistically at the individual. How are we managing all this better? Yeah. The challenge, it seems, is that's extremely time-consuming. So how are you seeing the um, that play out in terms of the battle for executive attention and um support from from as you were saying on terms of ethical leadership that has to come from the top it does um uh, are you seeing that is there are you starting to see a trend where people are saying actually we do recognize now if because from a risk assessment perspective you think it would be loud and clear on that risk assessment that this is actually a high risk because you're saying that individual as Andy, you were talking about they're high risk right for us but they could <laughs> they could go rogue at any moment in time or could yeah. be manipulated or groomed or whatever right well, let's address that in reality there's lots of everyone's not everyone but lots of people are overstretched in sport trying to you know drive and push forward whether it's on the performance side or the commercial side how are you seeing um the leadership address you know making sure there's time to give to that meaningful um education process um and put those safeguards in place that you may not see the immediate return on investment whereas if you do this sort of as you were saying come into the room be lectured at let's tick a box i can tell you clearly that we've delivered this education whether or not it's actually happened or not is a different matter but I, at least i've got a report that means i can present to everyone and i can push it out on social media and to stakeholders it looks great what are you seeing happening in that in that arena yeah, I think it's an imperative that sport leaders absolutely have to grapple with because you're right, it is time and resource intensive, but so are these cases. 
I mean, think about the reputational damage of doping and match fixing and other kinds of scandals off the pitch and so on. And and what we've seen through the, the US cases in gymnastics and, of course, in the UK in football, as you mentioned, in Australia and New Zealand, we've had our own cases into gymnastics and, and there will be more. There's no doubt that, that the risk is lowered now for people to speak out because they feel more comfortable to do that. So we're going to see more cases around abuse and overtraining of athletes. And I do think that there has been a big shift even in the last five years to see that athletes are not just assets anymore. They're not something that you that just use to commercialise. And if you do regard them as assets, then it's it's in terms of asset protection, right? So if, if you do take that pure commercialisation perspective, which is not one that I adopt, the book has chosen to, to take the feminist perspective of ethics of care and to say that we need to care more for those most marginalised in our community. And in that case, it's, it's children. Um, in terms of women, um, it, women are obviously not marginal in the sense that they still make up the majority of the population, but in terms of sport, their ability to participate, to be part of the leadership and decision-making roles, then they are marginalised. If you look at examples that we've just given with people with vulnerabilities, um, people with disabilities and so on, the, the whole intersectionality arguments, then there's more love and more care that needs to be provided by the sports organisations. And I think they're starting to get it because these scandals are coming out and saying, wake up, this is going to cost you if you don't put these provisions in place early to make sure that we don't have a recurrence of this into the future. Well, you, uh, you, just look at you say that and I think, uh, I like to think you're right. And I do think there, there's um, uh, people doing great stuff. And you look at the Osaka uh, situation um, in tennis and you think, mm, maybe, mm, yes. you know, maybe this. Uh, maybe that was not a, a good example. But, you know, somebody had to stand up. Somebody who's got the platform like Naomi Osaka has to stand up and say, you know what, those post-match conferences destroy athletes. And if what you want to see is athletes performing at their best, and that's what we love about the Olympics and the Grand Slams and the World Championships is seeing excellence on the world stage. That's what we're about. We want to see how far can people push sport to be as brilliant as they can be. Post-match conferences are contrary to that completely they're like big brother in the sports setting is how how can we make reality tv to see people cry and get angry and and sulk and so on and, and then we're going to make a story out of that that's not journalism and that's not keeping the the athlete centric ethics of care perspective front and center and that's where i think things really need to shift so i totally applaud naomi osaka for taking that stand this week and the number of athletes that have and not just athletes actually musicians entertainments politicians around the world who have supported her i even saw gene simmons from kiss had come out and supported naomi osaka and i thought that is cred right there <laughs> that's fantastic i loved it well, but do you not think? Do you not think as well when you're talking about you know, risk management and protecting your asset that that again, even if you do, you know, we have to find the right tools to communicate with with the yeah, you know, motivate the right people. And it seemed to me that 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 seems like you know, again, if you're looking at how they protect our asset here, and obviously you can understand that they're really worried 
from the commercial side, this COVID that's been happening, they're, they're probably under financial pressures. You can understand the, the anxieties there, but there should you'd like to think there was someone in the room or maybe there were people in the room who expressed their concern over this. And that, that should be, again, if we take a human approach, so I don't know much about feminism in the sense from an academic study perspective, yeah. but I just take a human approach that, you know, I believe that fundamentally we're all human beings. We've, we, we've got more in common than we have differences. And therefore, as that, as in respecting someone's, you know, individually, um, that you should probably try to make the best decision by them. And it's a difficult one to to, to, to get right, and particularly in a high-performance environment, and particularly when there's commercial relationships where, hey, we're paying you to, or they perceive at least, um, and maybe that's where some of the disconnect is. <laughs> the athlete thinks they're paying to play, and the um, and the hit organisers are going, we're not only paying you to play, but we're paying you to, to perform uh, you know, and do the hype around it, right? And you see this particularly very prominent in sort of uh, boxing and, and mixed martial arts. You see this being a very prominent area, right? Where, you know, the people who like Conor McGregor and others who play that game get lots more money because it helps sell the fights and everything. So I understand, you can understand from each side at least part of their perspective but you'd like to think there was mechanisms in place to go hey let's do a let's stop for a second have we got a, a you know a protocol we should follow yeah have we got the balance yeah, yeah. right yeah have we got the balance right and i think that's an argument i don't i think you're exactly right they're humans first and it doesn't matter what they're paid i think they're humans first and I think that's really come out through the commentary around the Naomi Osaka matter this week is that a lot of people are saying, well, this is your job and this is what you should be expected to do. But none of us, uh, after a, a, a court case that we've done badly in or, or we've won, are expected to then do a press conference about how do we feel about that. Um, we get to go home and uh, drown our sorrows or, you know, take a run or do whatever we do in order to manage our own mental health. But athletes don't get that privilege. So I think that uh, we need to get back to basics and, and recognise that humans, that athletes are humans first. And there's a lot going and there's a lot going on at the moment. Like, yeah, we just did, as I said, we just did our football or conference and I've been kind of off social media for a week, partly because I had to catch up with everything else and I just didn't have the just didn't have the time nor energy to do it and I've got the luxury that I can do that and no one's going to be uh, question whether or not it's the right thing to do for law in sport because it probably should be a bit more visible um you know more often but yeah at the same time I just took the view that and I've got the luxury of doing that going hey it's not going to be good given everything else is going on um not good for for mental health to be trying to you know talk about everything publicly or give a view on everything right you're probably not going to come from a good place when you're that busy uh so you're probably best leaving it out whereas when you're an athlete you're expected to do it but likewise do you think as part of this sort of changing culture we probably need to have the same compassion for the leaders as well because you know we talked uh yesterday about this um we had our, we had a failed attempt with technology to try and do the, the recording of the podcast. So I'm so glad it's working well today. Um, but David Howman, who we who we, who we both like and respect in the space, uh, who did a talk for uh, Play the Game and the Inardo held an anti-doping conference, and he just said, you know, we need to get back to you know like catching cheats right it was very basic about like hey let's get back to catching cheats and one of the characteristics about david that i've, I've admired um in his work when he was at wada and, and since and in, in other conversations we've had was his um openness right and strength in kind of like saying hey this is this is truly what's going on i always remember going to a conference with anti-doping where when wada were hosting and going look guys we're doing all these tests great 
But don't get sidetracked by the tests, right? That's pretty meaningless. We've got other work to do. We need to be more intelligence-led staff. And just so frank and honest about it, I haven't necessarily seen the... Um, it's, it's not always that often, and particularly now with the social media prevalence and the way the journalism's going in terms of driving up advertising, so we're looking for these stories, that you see the same type of frankness from other leaders within sport and i can understand why um do we need to therefore do we do you think we need to so this is the world's longest question i need to get better this i need to put myself on a training course to do uh, more succinct questions i apologize um <laughs> oh dear um david hellman is refreshingly authentic yeah and yes, do you think do, you, um, do we need to get more of those yes we do and do you think we need to have more compassion <laughs> that we show to the athletes to the executives because like with athletes they can get it wrong right and we have these sound bites from from yeah. these leaders sometimes where, where they say stuff and it can be taken out of context i see it all the time from a law and sport perspective where people write articles for us and we hear you know we get the quotes in the articles and it doesn't really give the full picture um do you do you think there's more to be done there as well yeah there's definitely a lot to be done about that what what we, can we do though when we live now in this 24 7 media cycle i think that it's not just sport of course our politicians and anyone who's in the in the public gaze um gets caught up in this where nuance isn't something that's celebrated is it as you were explaining just with the lawyer's walk <laughs> articles when you, you take one little quote out of context which hasn't explained how it is that you got to this point and people say, well, this is all terrible um, and run off on their own agendas. And I think that we do need to have some more compassion because any of those leadership jobs are very difficult and particularly as they're trying to navigate their way out of COVID and what does sport look like in this new brave world. I think we do need to give them some love and compassion too. They're tough jobs at the top, no doubt about it. But I, I wanted to come back to your point that you made earlier about what is it that's important? And David Howman making that um, really pithy observation around well, this is about cheating. And so one of the chapters that I wrote in the book with my um, honours student, Victoria Jamison, was about the, the WADA um, provisions and the definitions of athlete being so broad and how that was capturing recreational athletes that had no idea that they were captured by the rules, had no intention to cheat, um, they might have, in, in the case that I looked at from New Zealand, the XYZ case, um, he was just trying to get a fat loss product over the internet, had no idea that what he was um, ordering had something in that was A, prohibited by New Zealand customs, and B, was on the WADA prohibited list. And he got caught up in all of that. And I was just saying in that chapter that WADA really needs to give the national anti-doping organisations a bit more guidance around this and some leniency to have discretion on how they spend their resources, not least of which because the national anti-doping organisations are funded by the taxpayers. And if you come back to it, what do the taxpayers want to protect? They want to make sure that their elite athletes are not cheating and their sub-elite athletes that are trying to get into the elite competitions are not cheating. That's fundamentally what they want. And if we're spending all these all this money and this time chasing after the XYZs of this world, then that that impacts on the trust. 
And that impacts on, uh, in academic world, we call it the social licence to operate, which is, you know, the permission and the authority to go off and spend taxpayer money to go and do what we've given them permission to do. And so I've said, come on, WADA, you need to be clear about this. I can see how the discretion can be abused because you have to say, well, if New Zealand's allowed to do it, then so is every other country in the world, and that's fine. I think we can set up some rules around transparency but we have to be clear on what is the prize here. We want to stop cheating in sport. And to that aim, which I, I agree with, and I think it's like, you know, but there's countries like, say, for example, in Belgium, where they just literally adopt across the board everything, including recreational athletes, uh, kids in schools. So they've got, it applies to everyone. And that's the, that's the approach that they've taken on a national basis to take that approach. Um, and that's for them to decide. But given the, the you know, I get, I always pull people up uh, in terms of saying CAS, right? CAS have done this, CAS have done that. And I always say it's the panel of arbitrators who have agreed it, right? So I always remind people, and I'm guilty of it myself at times, being sort of late and you know, often not precise enough with my language. Um, in terms of when we say wilder, how easy is it to actually make that type of change given the, the sort of the political transnational um, nature of wilder? Where we say wilder and immediately you'll think of... Um, uh, you know the the executive. You'll think of these people, right? The WADA uh, code and the and the international standards. That's what I mean. Yes, right, and there is a right. consultation process, of course, because the code has been improved from when it first came into being in two thousand and three, and we've seen two thousand nine, two thousand fifteen, twenty twenty one. Now we've got the different views, and the New Zealand was one of the countries that wrote in as part of the consultation process for this latest code and said come on, give us some more discretion here and clarify what it is that we can and can't do in this setting because we also don't want to be going after the XYZs of this world that are recreational athletes. Because remember the social policy behind this, why is it that we play sport? What is it that we think is the social good here is to have people exercising and to be healthy and to combat the obesity endemic uh, epidemic. And so... If we've got people who are trying to purchase fat loss products and aren't purchasing safe products for themselves, that's an issue. We put that in one box. But that's not a, an elite sport issue. It's not an anti-doping issue in sport. And so we should be putting that in a different box. And the fact that the two have crossed over because we have this really broad definition of athlete is a problem for national anti-doping organisations because what we want is people out there exercising, not banning them and saying, I'm sorry, you can't play your weekend golf game or go and help your kid out for in the local footy league or whatever you're doing because now you have prohibited association rules because you've been banned from sport. That's just a ludicrous outcome. And I think that everybody can see that, but how to how to deal with it, as you point out, is a bit tricky. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, you know, we've talked about this and, and I think it was like Michelle Verrocken who pointed this out to me um, and then others, um, I mentioned exactly who, because I, I can't remember who it was, but it was someone at USADA um, um, who pointed out, again, the lobby of the supplement businesses is so strong, right, that, that trying to actually get any proper regulation in place about, because I remember years ago taking a product, and it was an it was an early mover into the uh, supplement market years ago, and it was a creatine product. And I took it, and I was uh, honestly, it did not have it. Couldn't. There's no way it had legal supplements. No, I look back because I took it a few years later when they became a more well known brand, 
Um, and there was an athlete who got done for taking that supplement as well at the, t- at the time. Okay, we don't drug test you, Sean. No, exactly. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, <laughs> you, you, yeah, there's definitely an absence of high performance substances in my body at the moment. But the, um, the, uh, um, the, the, the really interesting thing was though, it was a creatine product and I took it and it, and literally I just couldn't, it was almost like I couldn't sit still in terms of the amount of energy it gave me. I was running five miles to do tie boxing, two hours tie boxing, five miles, so yeah, five miles was it three miles there three miles back two hours of training six days a week and I just couldn't sit still I was just completely like wired and then years (laughs) later I stopped taking the product because I was worried about side effects of taking too much creatine and then I think about five years later I said it became well-known brands like sponsoring in sports like football and rugby and you know getting other well-known athletes on board and it became legitimized and um, I took the same supplement and it had it was not the same. Like it truly wasn't the same. I was doing the same. I was still like training very hard and everything else. It was not the same. Then I spoke to other people in the, in who knew the company and I said, Oh, absolutely. This is one of the strategies that to get your product, to get traction with a supplements product is that you make sure that it's not hundred percent what it says it is on the tin, because that means people will start talking about it. Right. That was one of the, the strategies for, for growing a supplements mm-hmm. company. Right. So you were quite happily like, you know, they were quite happy if it was contaminated, particularly if you're not, you know, this is a long time ago now, like God, how long ago, 20 years ago or whatever. Very disturbing. That was the reality of, and I know people who've run their own supplements company and they like, there's obviously better ones than others, but they're they're really not that robust in their, their review. Anyway, moving on from that, how did you get, and I know we're going to be short of time because you've got to go soon, but um, can I ask you, um, you've, you've, one of the, the few people who have moved from practice into academia can I ask like why was that and what you know what brought you to that place given that you you have know, done some really interesting and exciting roles in private practice and in-house yeah oh well actually it's it was the teaching that got me suckered in I had an opportunity to do some backup teaching for one of the academics here at the University of Canberra in 2012 and I just loved it. The subject was called business, politics and sport and every week I got to talk about a different sport and talk about what was happening politically and I was like, you guys are paying me to do this. This is fantastic. (laughs) This is the most fun ever. I was like, how do I get to do more of this? And so then they, once they hook you in, then they tell you the catch and that is, oh, by the way, now you have to do a PhD if you want to teach full time. So I thought, ah, oh, okay. So that's, you know, six years part-time while I was busily doing consulting and working and doing all these other things. And, of course, I, I have a family as well, so my son is now 18. But uh, at the time, teaching also gave me the opportunity to be flexible so that I could um, be there for his events and, and travel and, and do all those other things as well. So it really gives you a lot of flexibility and it gives you a lot of flexibility to speak too because as an academic you can be free. Um, in the public service, even working for ASADA and so on, you have to get everything signed off before you can say anything to the media. Um, and even as a lawyer, of course, you're acting on behalf of your client. You can't say what you really think. Um, so academia gives you that freedom, <laughs> and I really enjoy that. So freedom for me, I discovered, was one of my fundamental values. <laughs> I'm the same. I'm exactly the same. It's the reason why we take the business model in terms of not having that ability that we work with everyone. We can work with everyone. We can be respectful to everyone, but we, but we, we're not, 
you know, no one controls us in the sense of what we can and can't say. Our responsibilities to to be honest and um, have integrity in our approach. Um, and and, and that, ask that questions, is liberal, liberal, Sean. Isn't yeah. that the most fun ever? You can ask as many questions as you want. And I really love being able to talk to whoever I want. And I'm sure you feel the same. Ah, it's you, you can go around the world and you can say, I just really want to know why you did that and how that came about and, and, and where are you going to next? And then people tell you. It's fascinating. Do, do you think there's um there's an opportunity here? Because one of the things that I that I think, and obviously you've been involved, I said across all these different disciplines uh, for a while now, and it seems to me that I always find that I, I form these opinions of people in my head, right? Or expect you create an expectation before you spoke to someone that they're going to take a certain position. You're running for all the different scenarios. Are you know why they're going to do this? And then typically, when I speak to people, people are way more um, thoughtful considered um and as you were saying nuanced in terms of their opinions and approaches and i often get surprised in terms of the responses that i get from people um do you think there's an opportunity there for um let's say like greater collaboration and greater sort of discussion particularly from private practice lawyers who an in-house counsel working in the space i know there's a lot that goes on already but do you think there's there's something there to be to be learned and would it have what you know now in your position now and given that you have got this freedom would that have influenced how you behave when you were in-house and when you were in private practice Oh, absolutely. I think that when you're in-house and you, you're working in private practice, you're so busy just getting the work done that you actually don't know what's happening from the academic research side. And there's, there's, it's like uh, someone described to me yesterday, like a jewellery box of, of magic that's in the academic world. And yet you just kind of don't know how or you don't have the time to tap into it. So I think there needs to be much better collaboration and, and that's really why I wanted to do the book the way that I did it is because corruption in sport and sport integrity issues are really multidisciplinary. They have to be looked at from a bunch of different lenses and and look at from different countries, different sports to see what can work. And unless you've got people coming together talking um, in this space where it's safe and you can share information in this way, then you're not going to really go forward. So that's what I was trying to do through the book is by pairing people together that were academics together with non-academics, people that were from different disciplines, not just two lawyers together, for example. I would get law enforcement people, investigative journalists, um, uh, uh people that were policy makers or, or whatever and bring them together with with the theoretical frameworks in academia and say, okay, what can we learn here? Um, take people from outside sport and say, what who's doing really interesting work in the anti-corruption space um, in banking and finance or in the pharmaceutical industry or who's doing um, interesting work that um, is solving problems in manufacturing and what can we learn from that and bring it into the sports perspective? That's what I spend most of my time. Yeah, I love that. I, like that's that, that uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's something I, I I I love that approach. Absolutely love that approach. I think it is um, an enriching approach, and it also shows where there's opportunities. You know, the amount of private practice lawyers that we deal with, and we say, "Hey, you're white collar crime specialists. You're um, you know, risk management experts. You're you know, um, and you've got all this other sector experience, other sector experience, other industries experience. You can bring over into sport, and it's that." It's that, um, like I always say, for me, it's just a question of diversity. That diversity of perspectives and thoughts is just so enriching. 
you know, particularly if it's done in a, in a, in a you know, if it's not done in a structured way, it can be slightly difficult to manage. But when it's done in a structured way as well, and from an inform like someone like yourself who's who's got so much knowledge, you can shape it and pull out the 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 the, the, the key parts that are important. I'm really looking. You know, I've, you've now really got me excited about re- <laughs> reading the book. Now I'm like thinking that's going to be my re- weekend reading. Um, I'm really looking forward to get stuck into it. Um, Catherine, it's been lovely to speak to you. Um, as I said, I think what you're doing is great. I love the approach you're taking. And I know that at the heart of all of that as well is about, you know, an inclusive approach. We spoke about it at length. We haven't gone into it in too much detail today, but I know that, you know, it was really important for you when you're looking at the authors to make sure you've got people from all around the world to, to have, um, you know, to be really inclusive uh, and get the different perspectives. And I think that's such a, a, a an enriching um, thing to do for us all. You know, something that we talked about for our conferences that I always find you know again we just learn so much from everyone right and there's this sometimes there's a snobbery just to look at what we perceive to be the high performing sports or sectors or industries right and sometimes as everything gets moved along we 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 lose sight of some other really good stuff that other people around the world are doing and so yeah congratulations on the book um i said i really like it i've really enjoyed speaking to you um look forward to keeping keeping the conversation going and um if people want to get access to the book they can view it uh, on Kindle store, you can um, restoring trust in sport. You can we'll put a link to it. That's the best thing. If you give us a link, we'll put a link to it in the bio, uh, in the description part. And have a great rest of the day. And I think you're off. You're off out now because obviously you're in Australia. You're off. we are Friday night. Awesome. Well, have a lovely weekend <laughs> as well. And um, thank and, you. And <laughs> uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, as I always say, if you enjoyed the work that Catherine's doing, please let her know. Please do share this information with people. You know, the Lawrence Paul podcast. We don't take. Currently, we don't take any advertising. Um, we're just about, you know, again, trying to be uh, as free as possible to do what we want to do. If you enjoy what we're doing, it's word of mouth that makes all the difference. We've had 100,000 downloads now. We'd love to get more. Um, you know, if you enjoy it, please just tell people. And, of course, for all the latest legal, if- legal issues and developments in the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. And, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in check us out on all social media and uh, thanks for your support and I've got a screaming kid in the background that's, the, that's, that's what time it is for me so um, yeah thank you so much this is the COVID world we live in thanks very much Sean